when you're in the Word of God and you go through it a few times, you know, you, you, you do like, you study the Greek and you study the, the you know, the, the sort of historical background to it, cultural backgrounds and so forth. And you want to make sure that you're clearing all your context and facts. You get to that place where you, you look at something like this and perhaps you're really familiar with a lot of this text. And we ask, well, it's sort of like we were saying, it's sort of like being a prep cook where you've kind of cut all your vegetables and everything's prepared and now it's just giving God the chance to make his uh, recipe for our hearts today. So read along with me, if you would, please, starting in verse 32. <clears throat> Excuse me. Now, as they came out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name, and they compelled him to bear the cross. And when they had come to a place called Golgotha, that is to say the place of the skull, Golgotha is Greek, the Excuse me, the Latin for that is Calvary, for where we get Calvary Chapel, by the way. Verse 34, they gave him sour wine mingled with gall to drink, but when he had tasted it, he would not drink. Well, then they crucified him and divided his garments, casting lots, that it might be fulfilled what was spoken by the prophets. Interesting, he's actually speaking about David. And they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. That's actually Psalm 22. Verse 18, by the way, written a thousand years before this event. Sitting down, they kept watch over him there, and they put up over his head the accusation written against him. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and the other on the left. And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, You who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself if you're the Son of God. Come down from the cross. Likewise, the chief priests also mocking with the scribes and elders said he saved others. Himself he cannot save. If he's the king of Israel, well, let him come down from the cross and we will believe him. He trusted in God. Let him, let he deliver him now if he will have him. For he said, I'm the Son of God. Even the robbers who were crucified with him reviled him with the same thing. From the sixth hour to the ninth hour, there was darkness over the land. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. That is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of those who stood there when they heard that said, This man is calling for Eliyahu, for Elijah. And immediately one of them ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed, offered it to him to drink. And the rest said, Leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah will come and save him. And the rest cried out. Sorry, then Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earthquake, the rocks were split, and the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. So when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, they feared greatly, saying, Truly, this was the Son of God. Will you pray with me, please? Lord, I I pray for us right now. You know exactly where we're at. You know what we need to hear today. And I throw myself at your feet and I pray, Lord, that you would captivate us in your word. That you would so enthrall us. That you would be so clearly present. So clearly here. That we would fall on our knees and say, God, have all of me, please. Lord, for those today who are struggling, there's something they can't get. Life just seems to be unfair. Today, break through all of the fear and doubt. Answer the questions. Meet us right here now, I pray. Color in the black and white. Let us get it. Let us get every moment, I pray. And have your way, Lord, please. Have your way. Lord, I pray that you would speak to each one of us 
in our hearts. That our minds would hear your voice. That our hearts would hear your voice. And that you shine light on the very darkest areas of our life. Put hope where there's hopelessness. Strength where there's weakness. Life where there's death. We commit this to you, Lord, please, today. Come upon me in such a way, Lord, that they see you. And that your word have his perfect work. Jesus, be exalted now, we pray. Save the lost. Equip the saved. Use the equipped. Lord, make this your day. And redeem every second, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. I would say today as I would any, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures. Let the Bible always be that for which you hold all things true or false. There comes times in our life where circumstances seem to challenge our grasp of God's goodness. They seem to contradict God's faithfulness where our core of reality which is anchored in an understanding of our Almighty's loving kindness, violently collides with the heinous burglary of the offensive day. And it's in those moments where the facts taunt me, or what seems to be the facts. How do I bastion the fleeting hope then? How do I find joy's comfort there? How do I, amidst the murky shadows cast by the Goliaths of my pain and grief and betrayal, discover the sheltering peace that my mind cannot see? If you've ever been there, or you are, this study's for you. It's for me. I might even have titled it, When It Really Seemed Like God Lost. Well, let's walk through these verses together. In verse 31, prior to this, Jesus has been condemned to death. They've mocked him. They've put a robe on him. They've put his own clothes back on him and left him or let him out to be crucified. Traditionally, when a person was to be crucified, it was Rome's way of doing more than just punishing the criminal, but it was also a way of preventing the crime. If they could make it as painful and as awful and as deleterious to anything comfortable that they could, if they could make it full of suffering, then anybody who contemplated doing the same thing would then not do it. That was the idea. And above every person hanging on a cross would be a thing called a titlas, or a title. And that was the crime for which then you could see clearly that's what the guy did. Note to self, don't do that. You didn't just wait for the cross and then throw yourself upon it. You carried the crossbar. It's called a patibulum. Roughly the weight of a railroad tie. In essence, it would be about the weight of a, if you will, a teenager. It would be somewhere roughly that of about somewhere between, really between 25 and 40 kilos or between 75 and 125 pounds. And you put it upon your shoulders. The shoulders, by the way, that had been whipped and scourged, had been beaten. It has suffered something called hematidrosis or hemohydrosis in the garden where his skin, in essence, had erupted, if you will. It had become really fragile, kind of like a pinata, like paper mache. And Jesus has to carry this cross, this piece, to where ultimately where he would be hung on a place that we see here, the place called Golgotha or Calvary, the place of the skull. There, awaiting him would be the stipe, the long piece. Now, Romans were uh, rather frugal. They would actually pull out the nails after a person was crucified and use them on the next guy, unless, of course... And and that was one of the reasons why, to be honest, there were many cynics, uh, even less than 100 years ago, who actually said crucifixion didn't exist until they discovered a broken nail, a nail that had been bent. So when they tried to pull it out of the poor guy's foot... Well, at that point, they decided to keep it because they weren't going to be able to use it anyways. It was, you know, and God knows. There's anything that somebody wants to criticize for God, God knows. Somewhere buried in the ground, he can pull something up anytime he wants. 
But Jesus here is carrying the patibulum, and as he's carrying the patibulum, he's awaiting this stipe, that long piece for which they put it on, they kind of locked like tongue and groove, and then they would ultimately tie him onto that, nail him onto it. And, uh, and of course, and then raise him up. But somewhere in all of this, Jesus needs help. Somewhere in all of this, the tradition, the Catholic tradition, and I remind you, everything before 300 plus 350, before 300, 350 um, AD, was really, the Catholic Church was all Christians. Catholic just meant universal. And then it became something with division. But before that, it, was just, it just meant every, all Christians, in essence. And the general belief was that Jesus had stumbled. The tradition is that Jesus, somewhere in it, had stumbled. He's got his arms wrapped around this big piece of wood. He's going to fall. There's nothing to catch his fall but his face. We really don't have that in any of the four texts. But what we do know is somewhere down the line, Jesus needed help. Somewhere down the line, some guy from Cyrene, now, Luke and Mark well, both, both record this as just John. And as they do, they add a little bit of information. The guy had come from the country. He is the father of Rufus and Alexander. Arguably, that could be the guys we find in the book of Romans chapter 12. But more than anything, what we get is he's from Cyrene. That's clear. Cyrene, I don't know if you know any Cyrenians. That's northern Africa. Today, that's basically Libya, to give you an idea. And the guy had come, it appears to be, had come to worship. Uh, we get the idea that the guy had come from the country, he's come to Jerusalem. I guarantee you he didn't come thinking he was going to carry somebody's cross. And as he shows up, somewhere down the line, the strangest thing, if you really think about it, happens. And that is that the Romans seem to almost show a weird act of mercy on their way to murdering this guy, uh, Jesus, because somewhere down the line they realize he is incapable of carrying this cross. And in doing that, they need to have somebody else. Here's the irony. They need to get somebody else to get that piece over there so they can finish killing him. It's a bit ironic if you think about it. But as I look at this, and of course we get the kind of story in all of this, there's something beyond all of that when I try to look at it in regards to applying it to my own life. And we'll see four basic things here that are the same things that challenge me today when I actually am trying to live the life of following Christ. And as I follow Him, certain things arise that challenge. And, and this is one of those things, if you will, and, and that is that somewhere down the line, a radical change happens. And that is that some guy uh, that is just standing there gets recruited, in essence, to carry a piece of wood so that he can make sure another guy can die. Now, that's a weird thing, but if you were that guy, wouldn't you be a little nervous? That they maybe had made a mistake? That somewhere down the line they might forget that this other guy was the guy to be crucified and you might actually be the guy that has to be, you know, that they might pin into it instead? Well, somewhere down the line there's this radical change. This radical change where they're expecting this guy to, you know, just like every other guy that carries his cross to, uh, carries his patibulum to the stipe and then they nail it and off they go. Well, somewhere down the line something radically changes. And I look at that and I realize that when I, when I see the text here, they lead him to the, to the place of this skull, which means he still has to be led there anyways to die. And then it tells us in verse 34 that they give him sour wine mingled with gall to drink and he refuses it. Something really strange comes out of that because I realize there is, in the simplest sense, so the first thing is there's a radical change. Now, the change that happens here is you just kind of assume, first of all, look at it from the perspective of the disciples. These are guys who had given up everything to follow Jesus. For three and a half years, some of these guys, all they knew was walking around with Jesus. And he fed 5,000, he fed 4,000, 5,000 Jewish men and their families, 4,000 Gentile men and their families. He's raised the dead. He's healed the sick. He's cleansed the lepers. He doesn't seem to have a problem with anything. And four different times at least, he has told us that he's going to be killed, murdered, and raised again. We get that, but somehow we don't get that information into our head. And now we watch him, and he is just on his way. He's, he's clearly now going to die. And something in my head, my, a fuse pops. A breaker in my head blows and I say, wait a minute, that is not the way this is supposed to look. According to Scripture, this guy is supposed to be victorious over everything. If he is the Mashiach Nagid, the Messiah, the Prince, that Daniel promised, that Isaiah promised is the reigning, conquering king like David, how does this work? And I get the idea here that such a radical change, when we're confronted with it, we go into these tailspins in regards to our faith. 
Because we just don't understand how this is what it looked like. And now somewhere in all of this, the comfort of this moment and the confidence in the direction gets hijacked. And now we find ourselves in a place we never thought we would be. And even though it's not a bad place in regards to what we just don't see is we don't understand how God can take this spot and live out the promises he's already given us. Let me ask you, is that you? How are you with change? When God says, all right, this is what I would like, and you fill in the blanks like I could easily do. I could actually fill in the blanks, erase them, fill in the blanks again with something else, erase them a second time, fill it in, and I was actually the right the first time. And I look at this and I realize that somewhere in this, this guy that appears, when Jesus somehow in all of this has this patibulum pulled from him, just like with me, sometimes the change looks in a way like I start to think God looks weak. Like I don't get it. I was sure that this is the way it would work and I even had sort of the five-year plan in my head. And look at these strange changes now. Look at the people I'm sitting next to or that I'm not sitting next to. And I look around or I think, well, wait a minute. And God has this habit, by the way, of only giving us one step at a time. Remember when he speaks to Abraham and he tells him, all right, go and leave your family in the place that you are to the land I will show you. And if you're anything like me, I would kind of go, well, where? How long is it going to take? And what's the route? But you know this. If God were to give us all that information, imagine if God gave you all the information of what he wanted you to do and what he was going to do as a result of it for the rest of 2017. You know what would happen. You might not talk to him until New Year's Eve because you already have the information, so why even... But see, God doesn't give you that information because what he wants... Because God is not recruiting servants first and foremost. What God is seeking first is companions. What God really wants is a relationship and nothing is more important to God than your relationship with him. Strangely enough, often these kind of changes demand for us actually to go back to the feet of Christ and go, Lord, what now? And if that really is the result of it, he's getting what he wants. So God says, all right, here's the deal. Take one step east. And you think, China, we're going to China. God said, one step east is not China. But it's amazing how we could actually fill in the rest as if it's like, don't worry. Have you ever done that with someone and they're, you know, they're giving you, they're speaking to you and you kind of, you're confident you know where the rest of their sentence is going. So you've actually kind of started dozing off for a moment. I never do this. So if you're talking to me, you know it's not happening with me. But you get the idea that, and then somewhere they kind of throw this kind of weird thing, this kind of curveball. God, in essence, God kind of bends one and you're kind of like, whoa, that's not exactly where I thought it was going. And all of a sudden, you're kind of going, wait a minute, what's, what's going on here? Here's the crazy part. It is easier to see the weakness in a moment like this of needing Simon to carry the cross than it is seeing the strength of Jesus refusing the gall. Now, it tells us, by the way, here that they gave him sour wine. Does anyone know what sour wine is? It's vinegar. That's pretty simple. It's wine that's gone sour. Interesting as that is, because in Psalm 69, also written a thousand years before Jesus, it says in Psalm 69, verse 21, they gave me gall for my food and for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. Does any, do any of you in here like drinking vinegar? Any of you have had that? None of you have really been hippies then, right? Because they have that, that kombucha stuff. You ever try that? It's, like, it's basically like mushroom slime covered in vinegar. Well, why in the world would they give him gall with vinegar? First of all, gall, what gall was, was an anesthetic. In other, in other words, it was something that, in essence, could kind of knock you out. It's like an, if, if, in essence, it would kind of be like the opiate of the day. So it was something where you could be put in an altered state so you wouldn't feel the pain like morphine. You wouldn't feel the pain the same. Well, why in the world would you put it in something like vinegar? Because gall tastes so awful that, I mean, could you find anything more brash than vinegar? I mean, vinegar is the one thing you could probably put petrol in and you might not taste it because vinegar is so strong. So they could put gall in it. Yet in this, Jesus tastes it. And as he tastes it, he looks and he goes, no way, I'm not doing this. Now let me ask you, how hard is it for you? 
you're struggling a bit, you're suffering a bit, whatever it is. It's a challenge of some sort. It's something where clearly this is not what you expected. Where do you go for comfort? Do you go to the bottle? Do you go to a 64-hour Lord of the Rings marathon? Not that watching a movie is in and of itself bad. Where do you go to escape? Because you realize what you're doing is you're just basically drinking sour wine with gall. But Jesus isn't going to do that. And I'll be honest, when I look at the condition of man, I think it shows greater strength to say no to the easy way out than it would be to endure the pain. Sometimes you have to endure the pain. Certainly in this case, Jesus does. So in our first case, we deal with the issue of changes. In our changes here, is there anything right now where your life is really different than you expected it to be? You're like, by this age, I should be married and four kids. By this age, I should have this Fortune 500 whatever. By this age, I should just be a citizen. I mean, what is it, you know? Who, I mean, let's face it. Could anyone have actually anticipated Brexit a year and a half ago? I mean, there are two, let's face it, in America and in England, in the U.K., Two events that have happened in the last year, to be honest, that I think everybody rubbed their eyes when, when they both actually were concluded and were like, really? Wow. Didn't see that coming. And of course, both of those events have still led to tremendous media backlash because I think everybody's still shocked. They're still trying to figure out what to do. So what do you do when you're like, whoa, this actually, this is going to bring about some pretty massive changes. In this situation, I want you to realize that God in those changing plans often is simply just drawing you back to conversation, getting you in that place where you can go, now, hear me, I love you, and I'm in control. When Isaiah was about to watch the northern kingdom be taken, Israel had suffered excuse me, a civil war after David's son Solomon I would come and go. The northern area, would, 10 of those 12 tribes would gather. They would call themselves Israel. The two in the south, it's Benjamin and Judah, and some renegade Levites would call themselves Judah, from which we get the term Jew today, for what it's worth. Now, Isaiah actually prophesies during a great deal of the time, but the northern kingdom, by the way, never seems to have a decent king. They'll be, for what it's worth, they will be... Um, there will be 19 kings up there, all of them wicked and horrible. And they'll be taken captive in 721, 722 B.C. And as they're taken captive by the Assyrian Empire, Isaiah has to watch that. And yet before all that happens, God shows him those first six chapters of Isaiah, six specifically, where Isaiah sees God on the throne. John, the apostle, will be caught up to heaven. As he's caught up to heaven, he's going to be shown, in essence, the end of the world. But before John is shown the end of the world, he sees Jesus on the throne. He sees God on the throne. And you need to recognize that often God will show himself before the chaos hits and say, just because it looks crazy does not mean I'm not in control. I still know what I'm doing, and you don't have to figure me out to know that I'm good, and I need you to trust me. In our first situation, and we'll move on, God really wants you to know, and he wants to speak into your life and to mine. Stop freaking out over the change. Just because somehow in it, your internal, if you will, sat-nav is saying, recalculating. Because the route you've already designed is now obviously not the route that's being taken. I want to remind you, you gave Jesus the right to drive your life, didn't you? And if you gave him right to drive your life, keep your eyes on the driver and you'll see he's not threatened, he's not freaked out, he's not frightened. Because if you can't control the road anyways, if you're going to grab the wheel, you're going to get into an accident and you're going to be sorry. So the only thing left is to decide whether you're going to enjoy the ride or not. 
And there's so much of life you could enjoy if you really trusted the driver. That you can look back later and say, wow, I actually freaked out and made this trip a really rough one when I really didn't need to. In this situation, the disciples, of course, are very challenged. And as they're challenged by these changes, they're trying to reconcile to what they understand and it's not working. Verse 35, it says, Then they crucified him. They divided up his garments, cast lots, that it might be fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet. They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. God bless you. And I mean that word for word. In Psalm 22, it is important to recognize this is David writing. And let me remind you, this is Psalm 22. It tells me this in verse 7 of Psalm 22. All those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip. They wag their heads saying, He trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. A pretty interesting prophecy a thousand years prior. A millennium before this. And it tells us here that they divided. Now, who in their right mind would say a thousand years prior, they're going to gamble for my clothes after you've been beaten and you've bloodied them sick. Who gambles for your clothing? Well, the reason why they gambled is they were more soldiers, in essence, than they were pieces of clothing. And the particular tunic Jesus wore was something called a chiton. A chiton, by the way, for what it's worth, is a seamless tunic. It's without seam. And because of that, it actually was of a higher value. It was a greater priced item. And so as a result of that, they kind of look, even if it had been bloodied and so forth, they could actually say, well, this is really, this is in essence the, the Armani of the pieces. Let's make sure who wants, let's, you know. And of course, they all want that, even if it's bloodied. Who could have imagined that that had been prophesied a thousand years before? Do you think there's anything Jesus could have done to force that prophecy fulfillment? Imagine while he's hanging on the cross and he looks down and goes, hey, you guys, you guys should gamble for my clothing. Here's some dice. It's in, you know. Wouldn't that just be weird? And it says that the two robbers, verse 38, were, were hung one on each side of them. That's important because if you remember, John and James, who would, by the way, be there, John at the foot of the cross. Um, we know that because Jesus gives John responsibility over his mother. Even though Jesus has four brothers, at least we are clear that Jesus gives the responsibility to John because at that moment, none of those brothers were saved. And yet in all of that, John and his brother had mom, they were called sons of thunder, uh, and dad was Boanerges because he says the sons of soul. I don't know if mom's thunder, uh, but, but either way, she comes and says, let my sons be at your right hand and your left hand when you enter your glory, when you establish your kingdom. And I wonder if they at this moment had sunk in that there is Jesus and there are two men dying with him, one at the right and one at the left. And I wonder if that really hit him yet. And yet what we do read, though, is that everybody at this point now seems to taunt Jesus. It tells us in verse 39, those who passed by. In verse 41, it was the chief priests, the elders, the scribes. It tells us in verse 44, it was the robbers. And this becomes our second thing. As the first would be, in essence, the changes. The second would be the challengers. Because in a case like this, how is it that these people get away with doing such nasty things? How could they possibly say these things in the face of God and God not go boom and just blast them out of the sky? Have you seen people and some of the things they've said and you think, wow, you should be really thankful I'm not God? Because, man, if you would have said that to me and I was God, I would have nailed you. And I'd have done it in some creative way that would have involved a whole lot of suffering. And maybe that's because I was raised on those kind of movies or it's just because I'm a horrible sinner. All of that said, we look at this and we realize, because as I, as I see this, I get the soldiers are gambling, the passers-by are mocking and blaspheming, the, rebel, the religious leaders are taunting, the robbers are reviling, and yet with all of this, imagine, you know, it's, have you had a rough day? You know, it's been one of those days where you just don't feel very well, I guarantee you it wasn't as bad as hanging on a cross, and then somebody kind of crawls in your grill and says something weird to you and you take it with you. Imagine being in this situation. Where everybody around you, including the guys who are dying next to you, who deserve to die, by the way, are looking and going, yeah, well, you know, come on. And what they're saying, understand here, is they're kind of saying, look at, 
You promised to tear down the temple and build it up. Well, then go ahead and do so. Okay, well, wait a minute. You, you know, if you really are who you say you are, well, then why don't you just step off the cross? If you step off the cross right now, I'll believe you. Here's the problem. If Jesus stepped off the cross, it wouldn't matter whether they believed him. We'd all still go to hell because Jesus' payment on the cross is what delivers us from the guilt of our own sin. I imagine it would be tempting. But please hear me in this. Scripture makes something really, really clear. And please do not get me twisted on this. This is fundamental to my understanding of God, and I hope yours too. In 1 Timothy 2, verse 4, it tells us God desires, the word for will, by the way, God desires all men to be saved. Well, clearly all men will not be saved, which tells us God does not get what he wants. In 2 Peter 3, 9, it tells us God is not slack as we understand slackness, but he's long-suffering, patient, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. I think that that's huge. God says in Ezekiel 33:11 that as I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked would turn and live. God says, you know what really delights me? When a wicked person turns to me so they could live. I don't want them to, be, to perish I want them to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. And I am patient not wanting you to perish because I really want you to come to repentance. This is what God wants. And he wants it for you. And he wants it for your mom and your dad and your cranky neighbor and your nasty boss. He wants it for the person who has, walks their dog and has them poop on your front right in front of your door. For the person who, by the way, blasphemes God in such an awful way that it's almost unfathomable the things they say. And they say it with tremendous media coverage. They say it with applause of others. This is something I learned early in life that often the weakest people are the most violent. It takes so much greater strength not to fight back, but to pray. I lived a whole life before, my, before I came to Jesus that was violent. And I would tell you it was certainly my weakest. It wasn't because I'd come out of a fight and quote-unquote lost. I lost by getting in the fight. And I try to teach my children, the only fight you win is the one you don't get in. But I look at this and I realize Jesus, who had absolute and total power when being challenged, all he had to do was take it back for a moment and we would all go to hell. That was what was in the balance. Do you know what kept him from fighting back? Love. That's what kept him. And I realized sometimes I say the most unloving things in response because I know I'm right or at least I'm convinced or I know that, hey, how dare you challenge me on this or whatever and I just want to throw something out. And it's like, look, at I understand standing for truth. There's a difference there. But another thing, when to be honest, the only thing you're going to win in this is an argument and not the soul. It seems to me so ludicrous if what God really wants is them saved. The reason he doesn't blast them is because he wants to save them. And to be honest, if God had just blasted someone who spoke stupid things about him, I wouldn't be standing here before you today. Before I knew the Lord, I don't know. I, to be honest, it's by God's grace I can't remember anything that I would have said but it's certainly within the realm of possibility. Some of you, it's actually probably even clear. But as this is the case, it's very clearly exactly what it says a thousand years before in Psalm 22. What says, all that see me ridicule me. They shoot up the lip and it even says they wag their heads, even as it says here, saying you trusted in the Lord, let him rescue him. That's exactly what it says here. And then in all of that, it says, well, let him deliver him if God delights in him. It's exactly what is happening here, as well as the fact that they cast uh, lots for, they gambled for his clothing, which is also from the same Psalm, Psalm 22. But I realize in verse 42, there's something we need to learn. And that is, when someone says, if God would have done this, I would believe in him. If God didn't do that, call him a liar. Call their bluff. Because God doesn't want them to perish. And he wants them to come to repentance. He wants them to come to a knowledge of the truth. And if 
The one thing that would have actually caused them to permanently change was something God could do. I guarantee you God would do it. He is not going to be negligent to that one opportunity, even one opportunity of calling out and actually doing so. Remember the Gospel of John, chapter 1. Nathaniel comes who said, can anything good come from Nazareth? And as he comes bringing Philip, Jesus says, truly there is a uh, son of Israel, Israel in whom there's no guile. And the guy says, well, how, how do you know me? And he says, look at, I saw you when you were under the fig tree. And the guy falls to his knees and says, truly you are the, the king of Israel, the son of God. And, he, and you look at that and you realize and of course, there's books written about the stuff that we don't get from Scripture, which always I think is kind of funny. And you get, then you go like, well, what in the world happened under the victory? It's really not the point, or God would have given it to us. The point was, Jesus knew that if he would have told him that, this guy would believe. That's all he had to do. In other words, that guy had a fig tree button. And all Jesus had to do was press the fig tree button, and that guy was going to believe. He wasn't going to miss that opportunity. For some That was raising the dead, healing the sick, cleansing the leper. For some, it was waiting. I guarantee you, if there's something that would genuinely cause a person to believe, God will do it because he doesn't want them to perish. So when they say, here, come off of that cross and we'll believe you, theoretically, could he have come off the cross for a moment and then come back on? I don't know, maybe. But what's clear is Jesus knew better. And no matter how much a person boasts, you know, I told God I would believe in him if my grandma didn't pass away. But she passed away. At 104, she passed away. I can't believe God took her. I'm like, she was halfway there already. But, we, you know, we, we, the only reason I say that is it's amazing how we use excuses and then say, well, that's why I won't believe in God. Which takes us then to our last couple on this, the other two. But let me ask you, are there challenges right now in your life? Things that really just keep pushing. People that are taunting that you just go, I don't get the justice in this. This person really seems to be getting someplace I'm not. And I don't get it. That person's completely unscrupulous. They're completely uncool. They're bad in just about every way. And yet, in all of that, look at, look at what we're dealing with. And look at me. I'm serving God and things don't seem to be working out. How in the world is that working out? This person's completely, you know, sexually loose or whatever, and yet in all of that, look at how they've gotten someone, and look at me, I'm trying to be humble and, and trying to be right and seek the Lord, and where in the world's that turning out? You realize in all of that, you get to this place. You get to this place where you kind of go, God, I have to trust you, and I challenge you to look at Psalm 73 in your own time. Because in Psalm 73, Asaph and the sons of Korah, they, you realize they had the same struggle. It says, I almost stumbled when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And in the simplest sense, he says, look at the rich get richer, the fat get fatter, the strong get stronger, and the oppressed get more oppressed. The poor get poorer. And he says, this kind of knowledge was too much for me. I got to the point where I'm like, what's the use, man? I've washed my hands and I've done this in vain. I've tried to do all of this stuff, you know, and, and where in the world is it getting? And look at those evil people and where they're getting. And then look at me. And it says, then... I went into the sanctuary of the Lord and I saw their end. You see, that's one of the points of coming to a place like this where we open up God's word and we see him for who he is as we get an eternal perspective again. And from an eternal perspective, I remind you, this is just a vapor. Eternity is eternity. That's infinite. And then you realize what we're cashing in, in the simplest sense, we may feel like we're losing at Monopoly, but we win in the real game. We win in life. I look at this and I realize this would be rough for me. Because to be honest, at a moment like this, already dealing with the change of Jesus hanging on the cross, somebody wagging at him, I would, you know, if I were there and I were John, I'd want to start throwing rocks at the two guys hanging on the cross. But if Jesus didn't retaliate, I think there's something to learn. And I realize there is power in God's patience. Verse 45. Then from the sixth hour to the ninth hour, there was darkness over the land. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And of course, how in the world do you wrap your head around God asking why? Jesus asking why? And of all the things to ask, Dad, why have you abandoned me? I mean, how do we, how do we wrap our head against that? 
I get the idea of changes and I get the idea of challenges and I look at this and I realize sometimes it's God's words where God's given a promise or He said something to me and, or I, I get something and I just don't understand. Like this. And I realize it's important to recognize there was darkness from 6th to the ninth hour. Traditionally, and it tells us, by the way, that there was a requirement for every man to pray three times a day. It was kind of, in essence, it was expected. Well, those three times, by the way, were the third hour, the sixth hour, and the ninth hour. Since the Jewish clock, if you will, started at 6 a.m., that means it was 9 a.m., noon, and 3 p.m. They were called for what's with the shacharit, the mincha, and the ma'ariv, or the ariv. These were the three times, and each one of those had a theme. The first of them, by the way, when you could be confident throughout the year, you could actually see somebody with a breath away from you. You could actually start this. And the theme of the first was God give. You started by praising God. You read a handful of Psalms. And then you did the Shema. And then you cried out, all right, God, now please give me what is necessary for you to, will, to act out your will for the course of the day. That was the Shacharit. That was at 9 a.m. Interesting, by the way, it was that same time, if you remember, when God pours forth his Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2 where they were doing the shacharit, God give and God gave. At noon, the second of them, again, the mincha, which by the way means gift, you were actually praying God speak. Interesting as that is, God speak was the same time where Peter goes up to pray in Acts 10. And there he falls into a trance and God says, rise Peter, kill and eat. There's bug and beast buffet. And ultimately God says, don't make common what or profane what I've made complete or, or what I've made holy. And God speaks. How does God speak here? It gets dark. Jesus is hanging on the cross. It's noon and at high noon it gets black out. And now all of our senses are heightened except our sight because we can't use it. I've been tempted forever to take my wife to Dans le Noir. If perhaps you're familiar with the place. It's a place where you go and it's pitch black and you have to eat food in it. Of course, I always wondered, they could just be serving you McDonald's. How would you know? The only reason I haven't is because it's, you know, it's more money. I'm like, how in the world could you pay that much when you can't even see your credit card? Anyway, all of that said, but the whole idea of it was that it being pitch black, your every other sense is kind of heightened was the idea so that you'd be able to taste things more. It's a concept at least. And I, I get the idea here. You're praying, God, speak, and it goes pitch black. But then the final one, the ma'ariv, ma'ariv you're praying, God, save. That's that, if you will, the ninth hour of the day when you're actually praying, all right, God, you've given me what I needed for the day. You've spoken to me. Interesting, the idea was, all right, now in the middle of the day, I'm a bit awake enough to hear you. All right, God, speak to me now. And then at the end, all right, Lord God, save. Save, pay, you know, I I know that you've paid for my sins. We would as a Christian, but then it was like, God, if you will, cover those sins and save me. Make me yours. Interesting. Because when we say, we would get on our knees, if you will, and say, all right, God, Speak, and the lights go out. And it's then that Jesus begins to speak those seven things that we'll see in the four Gospels that Jesus speaks. I thirst. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit as we see here. And then, to Telestai, it is finished. And then, the lights go back on. Just as we were praying, God save. And Jesus said, done. Painful. Here at this, by the way, in the midst of all of those, as it's dark, Jesus says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in the dark at that moment, what would I do? Like, wow, the Father has left Jesus. Now, there's one thing, though, because I think I've heard that before. We've sung it before. Traditionally in synagogues, you would sing this, the, the psalms. As you would sing the psalms, you would sing them, starting with the first verse, much like our hymns where often, though there's a title often, it's also listed by the first verse or the first words of it. Oh Lord, my God, when I... That's the idea. And then I turn to a specific psalm. Isn't there a specific psalm that starts, starts with Actually, that's Psalm 22. The very psalm where it says that they wag their heads. They shake with indignation and say, He who trusted in God, let God deliver him then. 
the same one. The same one as we look at all of this. As I go through this text, I realize that the whole idea that they divided my garments and for them they cast lots, that's Psalm 22. But then I realize there's other parts of it. Listen to these verses. Psalm 22, starting in verse 14. I'm poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It melts within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. And my tongue clings to the roof of my mouth or to my jaws. They've brought me to the dust of death. Dogs surround me. The congregation of the wicked encloses me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look and then they stare at me and divide my garments among them. And for my clothing they cast lots. That's what it says in 14 to 17 or to 18. You know the weird part is? When this was written, nobody was piercing hands and feet. Nobody was separating joints. No one would cause this kind of suffering in the deaths that they'd done. They'd throw them off of a cliff. They'd, they'd stone them. That would be the Jewish way of doing things. Run them through with an arrow. It was actually four to 600 years before the invention of crucifixion. But when that person was laid on that patibulum after carrying it and nailed in, pulled taut with their arms to where they were completely taut lying down and as they started to raise that up, when that got to 10 degrees, the weight on each shoulder was two tons. One of the easiest ways of knowing who had been crucified as a corpse would be that their arms would be six inches longer than they would have been before because they had been dislocated by being pulled out by the weight. But when you can't raise yourself up to breathe because you start to slouch, as you start to slouch, your rib cage no longer expands as you breathe. So you take shorter breaths. And as you take shorter breaths, your heart then starts to pump harder and faster to get that oxygen through every part of your body as much as it can until it goes too fast. And it's called maximum output failure, at which point you have a cardiomyrrhythia. No longer can keep that boom, 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 boom going. And at that point, then it starts to dump liquid into your lung cavity. We call that pulmonary edema. And you know what happens when that happens? The majority of the liquid that's left in your body goes there. You get terribly thirsty. Jesus would say, I thirst. But a thousand years before that, David would say, my tongue clings to my jaw. And ultimately, your heart erupts as that happens. As it starts to do that, it looks almost exactly like it starts to melt. And a thousand years before that, David said, my heart melts within me. It wasn't just hyperbole. It wasn't like David was just being flowery and poetic. David was seeing something that hadn't even been invented yet. And there, Jesus was fulfilling every bit of that a millennia later. So when he cries to that, for us, we look and we go, oh my goodness, I don't get it. Well, here's the only reason I understand that, because I took what Jesus said and I brought it back to the Bible. And I realized the Bible is the best determiner and the best commentary on the Bible. And when I hear something from the Lord or I'm confident I've heard something from, from the Lord, the first thing I do is I've got to go back into the Word. I go, right, Lord, get me this because I may not understand it. And then I get to Psalm three or to Proverbs three. And it tells me to trust in the Lord with all of my heart, my emotions, the part that just runs rampant in a moment like that. And then it says to lean not upon my own what? Understanding. But in all my ways. Acknowledge him and he'll direct my path. He'll make it straight. Listen to that because we know the verse, some of us. You can't do one without the other. You can't trust in the Lord with all your heart if you're leaning upon your own understanding. Because I'm leaning upon my own understanding, what I'll say is I will go as far as I understand and that's not trusting in him with all my heart. Well, how do I trust in him with all my heart if I don't understand what in the world is going on? Well, in all my ways, 
I look for him. God, I acknowledge that you're good and you're in this. You are not vacant. You are not negligent. You are not delinquent. You are not late. You're here and you're working something out. I don't have to understand because I trust you. And even though at this particular moment, I don't get how this reconciles, I'm confident I will someday. Even if it's painful. Now. So I ask again as we go to the last of this and close this up. Are there situations in your life that just seem to challenge what God has said? Hey, look at when it's in God's word, it's truth. So when someone says, well, I really think that's a fairy tale. Clearly it isn't like God said it and it was. Clearly things just came, you know, through random chances and lightning hitting a piece of something and ultimately life came from it. I've kind of learned this when lightning hits things. Things actually tend to die more than come alive. Have you learned that yet? And it's weird. And it's like, and because it seems like some guy is stroking his beard and waxing eloquent and using fancy terms and he's got the glasses on his brow or whatever the case is, we just assume if they draw a diagram it must be truth and you create a whole little group of people that agree with you and they and then call them the experts it's amazing now look and i'm not here to try to to diss on someone else i'm here to say god's word i guarantee you if you cling to god's word you will never actually have to change your mind later and here's the weird part everyone one day is going to agree with you that's kind of the exciting part and you'll say, well, when people ask, do you really believe Jesus is the only way? And it says, well, he said he was, so I guess so. Well, wait, do you really believe that, that all roads lead to God? No, I believe all roads lead to hell except one, and that's Jesus. That's what he said. If he said it, I believe it. Well, that sounds like blind faith. Actually, to be honest, I'm acknowledging him in it. I'm looking for him in it. But I've learned this. Everything else is perform and maybe it's good enough. Jesus says, I did it for you. How exactly is that the same thing? This guy says, go kill a bunch of people and tell them that the land's mine. This one says, my servants, I'm not of, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would be fighting. How exactly is that the same guy? This one's like maybe if you, if you eat enough granola and you put on your robe and you sit in a, in a cave long enough, maybe you'll find wisdom. But there's no relationship here. And this one died so I could have a personal and intimate relationship. He adopts me. He engages me. He enthralls me. And then he takes me and he has me be born again so I could be born into that family. You can't get more into the family than that. And I ask, how exactly is this the same thing? There's no blindness in that faith. Blind faith says, I'm going to believe this even if I really don't have any evidence. Well, it just seems like that would be right. That sounds pretty blind to me. But I've learned this. If you cling to God's word, you won't have to change your mind. Finally, in all of this, we get to the one that, in essence, tends to be, well, really, the sort of nail that closes the coffin here as we go to the end. It tells us, by the way, that those that were there say he's calling for Elijah. Isn't it weird he's saying, my God, my God, and they're going, well, clearly that must be Elijah. How weird is that? Well, why? Because Elijah was the one who came and left on a chariot, well, he left on a chariot of fire. And leaving on a chariot of fire, they kind of just assume, wouldn't that be really cool if that kind of is where the Messiah would show up and leave? There was even tradition and rumor, if you will, that that's how he would appear. So with that, they're kind of like, well, maybe that will really be the case. But he's actually talking to his father. We're aware of that. So they're saying, well, let's, let's wait. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Let's see if this happens. He seems to be calling out. So listen, we're hearing Jesus call out and we're waiting and we're waiting and we're waiting and he dies. I think, wait a minute. How could God not have failed? There was clearly a literal deadline and he clearly died. I don't get it. How does this work? And I realize as I look at this, perhaps the hardest thing, beyond the changes and the challenges and, and the word that doesn't seem to make sense or whatever in some moment, is the waiting. Those moments when you're like, I don't get it. I know God said this. But you know what happens if I get in the word? Do you know what I start to get? I get an Abraham who waited 25 years for a kid. Okay, that tells me something. And I look at that and I realize, and not only did he wait 25 years for it, but God promised him a land that he'd have to wait another, well, he isn't going to be around for another 400 plus years before it actually comes to pass. And I look at that and I think, wow, 
Time is really not the big issue with God here. Often the reason God allows something, if you will, in my mind to stall is it gives me an opportunity to exercise my faith in a moment, it's a different story. You know, when I was a, when I was younger, I'm not saying young, but when I was younger, I used to think of here was the guy that could do the right thing in that clutch moment. Baby's falling out of a building. He catches the baby. Everyone's happy and safe. Yeah, that is true. That is heroic. But as I get older, and notice I didn't say old, but as I get older, one of the things I notice is my heroes today are very different. They are consistent men. They are men who don't change. But rather, they are men who are stable in God, that you can set your watch to, that you know they're going to be there praying with their kids or reading with their kids or praying for their wife, and they're going to be faithful, and they're going to be seeking God. Even when everything else seems to be weird, they're still plotting that same course and they're going to hold on to God because somewhere in all of that, no matter how much time it takes, they're not changing. And even if he slay me, so will I praise him. That is a real hero because it's one thing to die in the right moment and it's another thing to live for the rest. And I look at this and I think, man, is there anything that seems to be stalling in your life right now? Nothing tests my faith like God not showing up the way I expect Him or at the time when I expect Him, but I've learned He's never late. It's interesting, in John 11, when Jesus is told about Mary and Martha's brother, who seems to be one of Jesus' best friends, Lazarus, it tells us that Jesus loved Mary and Martha, or literally, in this case, Martha and her sister and Lazarus. But when He heard that, that He was sick, deathly sick, by the way, said he stayed two more days in the place where he was. They're like, hey, your best friend's dying right now, Jesus. And because you loved him, he waited. Does that make any sense to you? And you think, well, if you really loved me, you'd have done this now. But I've learned this. Do you know why Jesus waited? Do you know why Jesus, we know now why Jesus would die, of course. But I realize in all of that, when it seems too late, everything changes. Because Jesus showed his strength over the challenges. Because Jesus showed his his strength to go through the cross, not just to the cross, but through the cross to the other side and the resurrection that that would come, that was impending. Because Jesus could actually stand on his word that had promised what would happen. And because even in all of that, it was at a time that I didn't want it to happen, but it happened. Behold, and he tells us in verse 51, behold, stop everything now. Now that you realize it seems like everything has fallen apart. Where are you? When are you? How are you? I don't get it. And all of that, all of a sudden he says, now stop and watch this. There's a veil. And that veil, by the way, according to Gamaliel himself, would tell us, that it was in essence as huge as 20 meters by 10 meters by 10 centimeters. I mean, that tells us, by the way, in essence, it was as close to seven stories tall. It was close to half that in width. And in essence, it was nearly 10 tons. It was a hand breadth, a hand breadth wide. That was the thickness of it. But it doesn't just tell us it was torn. It was torn from top to bottom. And of course, God tells us, in 2 Corinthians, that when someone turns to him, that veil is torn. Why? Because before that, we don't even get it. But because he could overcome those challenges, because he could overcome those changes, because he's in the midst of those, because he can actually stand on his word, clearly God could tear the thing and all of a sudden you see like you could never have seen before. But it wasn't just that. God also may cause the earth to move. That's what it tells us also in verse 51. And the earth does need moving. But it's interesting because David himself would cry out in Psalm 18. And when he said, in my distress, I called upon the Lord and I cried out to my God and he heard the voice from his temple. And my cry entered his ears and the earth shook and trembled. The foundations of the earth quaked and were shaken because he heard my cry. Because he was angry and he responded. It went through. God didn't tear the veil so that you could get into the Holy of Holies. God tore the veil because He told you He was coming out. And He was coming out to be with everyone that would willingly receive Him. And with that, the whole earth moves. And only God could tear something that's seven stories tall from the top to bottom. Only God could do that. And only God could move the world. And it tells us that the rocks were split. Only God could do so. But he isn't the first time he split rocks. 
interesting in the wilderness on two different occasions. God, like for instance in Exodus 17, would have the rock split and from it would pour forth water that would bring refreshment and life to everyone. And then finally, the graves were open in verse 52. And only God can do that. So see the progress. What happens first? The veil tears to say God's coming. The second, the earth moves because before that, it was on me and on you. The weight of the world and our sin and our shame was on us. And God came out and what did he do with it? He moved it. And as he moved it, he poured forth and ripped open the very rocks and gave us life. And in giving us life, we came out of our graves. And I think, God, I don't understand. And God says, because I didn't come to patch up. I didn't come to remodel. I came to rescue and give life. And that's different. I didn't come to help. I came to save. And that's different. And at the end of this, it tells us that these guys, these saints, came out of their graves and walked around the holy city. Only recorded in in Matthew, by the way. And it tells us after Jesus was resurrected. So we're there at the Passover and we, you know, we'd have a cup for Elijah. You know, say, oh, maybe Elijah will show up. And then instead, great uncle Charlie shows up. He's been dead for 30 years. And you're like, okay, I didn't expect him to come. We better say, how does that work? And as we go to prayer now, the ultimate result of it is that a centurion that was observing him says, you know what? He was everything he said he was. Truly, this is the Son of God. This is the righteous man. And let me ask you, when this all comes down and the challenges and the changes and the things that you just don't understand, and then ultimately with that time and you're waiting, when it all comes down, you know what you're going to come with in the end? Is you're gonna, we will all conclude, you know what? He was exactly who he said he was. He was exactly the way he said he would do it in the end. And here's the thing. The only difference is if in the end you're going to conclude that, how are you going to get there? Are you going to freak out the whole way there and then finally go, you know what? I guess he was right after all. Or are you going to be like, you know what? God, give me the ability to enjoy this ride. So as we go to prayer, beloved, now, let me ask, have you accepted this gift of Jesus Christ? Or are you just kind of going to church? And if you have accepted him, let me ask you today, are you willing with me to recognize that God is the, if you think about it, God is the temple, he's the veil terror. God is the earth mover. God is the rock splitter. And God is the one who is the resurrection and the life. Are we going to be willing to live that today? Because today, when it tells us faith comes by hearing and not the word of God, today, we've got the opportunity to exercise that faith. Will you pray with me? Lord, we've come to you now in our last minute. And we just want to say thank you. Lord, we recognize now, for whatever reason, it seemed like the heat's come off and it's gone back to the chilly church we're used to. Which, by the way, had we known, we would have put out our heaters. But Lord, you know this. Today in this room, you've spoken. And you've spoken to us. And maybe there are in this room, I would assume, and at the sound of this voice, people struggling right now. And they're somehow tangled up in the web of the details. They're hard, they're not finding you in it, but they're really very astute to the problems around them. And things are different than they expected. And they don't get it. There are people who seem to be getting away with murder. And they don't get it. There are things that seem so opposite of what you've promised. And they don't get it. There's things that by now it should be done. And they're waiting. And they don't get it. But today you're reminding us they were still the Lord And even death could not hold you. Sin could not stop you. The devil could not barricade you. There was nothing. For you were the undefeated heavyweight champion of the universe. The almighty, omnipotent God. And you reign. Thank you for reminding us of that today. Let us leave here different. Let us leave here resolved that even if we don't understand, we'll follow you. Even if we don't get it, we'll follow you. 
And when we have problems trusting because we become more aware of the problem than the problem solver, get us back to where our eyes are on you on the throne and you are in no way troubled or frazzled or confused. You know exactly what you're doing. Forgive us for where we've tried to actually give you the blueprints and then actually have the audacity to think when you don't build what we think you should build, the way that we we think you should and when, that somehow we're a victim in that process. But today, restore that faith, the hope that comes from it, that brings forth that faith, that brings forth joy and brings forth peace, a joy because we know our God loves us and he's good, and a peace because we know you're omnipotent and you know what you're doing that ultimately births hope. Oh God, please today, for those who say yes, who have said yes to you, please make it so. And finally, if there be anyone who is not sure if they've accepted or they know they haven't accepted the gift of Jesus, it's a simple choice to make. Are you willing to realize that Jesus paid that price on the cross? All of the guilt of mankind, including yours, paid for. And then rose again on the third day to give you a brand new life, to be the architect of your reinvention. So if that's you today, I'm going to pray this prayer. I ask you to listen, and at the end, if you agree, I ask you to say, Amen. And here's the prayer. God in heaven, I'm a sinner, and that sin makes me stand guilty before you, and someone's got to pay for it. But Father, I believe you sent your only begotten Son, Jesus, to die on the cross for me, so that I could have my sins paid for, my guilt vanquished, my filth purged, so that I could be yours. But you give me a choice. You desire for me to be saved, to come to a knowledge of the truth, to repent. So today I say yes. Jesus, be my payment, my Savior. And in your resurrection, be my Lord. I'm yours today. I hand myself to you. Jesus, in your name. And if you agree with that prayer, I ask you to say, Amen. God, you've heard us today. You've heard us. You know our hearts. You know our challenges. You know the changes that we face. God, you know those areas where we don't understand. You know those areas where time challenges us. And yet, our eyes are on you, there is rest. May we leave here with rest in our hearts, I pray. In Jesus' name.